You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. Well, something that's been a bit of an unexpected blessing during this time as we've gone through quarantine, as we've gone through the shelter in place and all that kind of stuff that we've been in during this time where coronavirus has been such a big deal and such a huge impact on our lives is I feel like for the first time in a long time, at least that I can remember, we're having a real spring. George weather tends to jump those transition seasons where we go straight from cold in the winter to hot in the summer and don't really have the spring in between. And then we have maybe three days of fall and then we're right back into cold winters. And it really feels like spring outside. The nice cool mornings, the warm afternoons, the rain on and off. It's just been a nice elongated time of spring. And through this, I have just realized how incredibly thankful I am for seasons. And it's been, I think, a really encouraging thing for me spiritually, thinking about God designing the world to work this way and recognizing even in Genesis chapter one, that God used the elements of nature to mark out not just the days and nights, but the seasons. And then he has a plan and purpose for this. And we get to see the world go through this process of creation, death, and recreation from season to season, from year to year. I love how John Muir, the famous lover of nature and explorer in the early 1900s put it, He said, one is constantly reminded of the infinite lavishness and fertility of nature, inexhaustible abundance amid what seems enormous waste. And yet when we look into any of our operations that lie within reach of our minds, we learn that no particle of our material is wasted or worn out. It's eternally flowing from use to use, beauty to yet higher beauty. And as soon as we cease to lament waste and death and rather rejoice and exult in the imperishable, unspendable wealth of the universe and faithfully watch and wait the reappearance of everything that melts and fades and dies about us, feeling sure that its next appearance will be better and more beautiful than the last. And that's just such an incredible picture of not only God's creativity, not only God's incredible mind as a scientist, but the way that God redeems and restores the fallen, the broken, and the dead. And the same God who created the trees and the leaves that fall in the autumn and then nourish the ground through the winter so in the spring new life can come about, that same God is the one who not only created us, but loves us enough to offer to us salvation. The one who can bring us from death to life. But as we're going to see today, then back to death and back to life again. But we'll talk about that in just a minute. Today, we're going to look at the beginning of a hymn that Paul quotes here in 2 Timothy. And he begins that in verse 11 by saying, this saying is trustworthy. Again, this is something we can put our hope in, something we can lay out as a foundation for our lives and our hope in the gospel. And so over the next two weeks, we're going to break down this beautiful hymn in verse 11, 12, and 13. But we're going to start by looking at the very beginning of it. And we're going to use this as a jumping point into multiple places in Scripture as we recognize what it means 
to know that death is essential to the gospel. Not just the death of Christ, but the death of anyone who would follow after him. But also the gospel is the hope of life. And so we're going to look a little bit theologically this morning at all these things and go through some bigger theological words and how they radically shape our understanding of not only who God is, but who we are because of Christ and what we can do because of Christ. And also, of course, where we're going because of Christ for anyone who has put their faith and hope in Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to be reminded of the fact that the gospel is all about dying and living. And so our text this morning comes from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. Paul says, this saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Almighty God, we just thank you and praise you that you are the God of life and death and death and life. May God, you take ashes and make them beautiful. You take spirits that have no hope, no life, no goodness, and make them alive, make them new, make them whole and make them holy. And so God, as we look through so much of the New Testament this morning and try to wrap our minds around what happens when you save us and what Paul means when he says, if we die with you, we'll also live with you. God, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's never put their faith and their hope in you, God, that you would save them by your grace and that we would get to celebrate that with them. For followers of Jesus who may be feeling a bit hopeless, isolated, alone, guilty, or ashamed, that you would remind them of the radical transformation you've made in their lives. And for those who are walking with you boldly right now, God, that you would strengthen them, encourage them, and guide them, and give them the hope and the encouragement to pursue the final prize. And so God, we just put all these things in your hand because we know that salvation comes from you, our Lord. And we ask that you teach us, guide us, and lead us. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Our first word this morning is regeneration. I was going to put all these on the screen, but I didn't. So I'm sorry. But our first word this morning is regeneration. And to see what we mean by that, we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now, we're going to be going to about six different passages of scripture this morning. So if you're following along, get your flipping fingers ready or get your thumb ready so that we can dive through, or you can just sit under and listen as we go. But Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with us, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, 
so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul tells us here that our spirits are dead to sin. He's pouring symptoms, this, this death, this sinfulness that's within us is pouring symptoms into every aspect of our lives. It's affecting everything that we do to the point where Paul would say in other places in the New Testament that there is no one good, no one righteous, no one that seeks after God. We see in Isaiah that our righteousness is like filthy rags before God because this plague of death that killed our spirits within us is infecting everything that we do. And what Paul reminds us of here in Ephesians chapter two is that salvation begins with death. That Jesus puts death to death in our lives, that he cuts away the sickness in order to bring about something new. And just like fallen leaves on the ground, Jesus uses this death. Jesus uses the sin nature that we're born into as fertile ground to bring out new life and new hope. And there's an important reminder here that this all begins with Jesus, that you aren't killing anything or overcoming anything at salvation, that it's not up to you. And so you may feel like your sin is too great or too overwhelming, or that if you just work hard enough, maybe you'll be able to earn God's affection. But Paul says here, no, no, no. This salvation is not by works, but it's by grace alone given to you so that no one could boast. But he also reminds us there that if we are in fact dead, there's nothing we could do about it anyway. And so God, the author of life through Jesus Christ can make us alive. This isn't about self-help. This isn't about improving your life. This isn't about getting life back on track. This is about a recognition that I have absolutely nothing to offer God, that I have absolutely nothing to offer for my salvation. And yet God loves me so much that he gave his only son freely and lavished his love on me with this great love and the richness of his mercy that even though I'm dead because of my sins and trespasses, Jesus has made me alive. Paul is calling us here to remember that when we put our faith in Jesus, it brings about a radical change of not just forgiveness, but of regeneration. It's not just wiping the slate clean, but taking something that was dead and resurrecting it and regenerating it and making it alive. And he does that through Jesus by grace alone. And all we have to do is receive it by faith. And that will shape not only our lives in the here and now, but all of our eternity. And so this idea of dying with Christ and living with him begins with recognizing that not only does our physical life begin because God knit us together in our mother's wombs, but our spiritual life begins not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ does for us by raising us from death to life, spiritually regenerating us. Our next word is recreation. And for that, we're going to go to 2 Corinthians. And we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, 
I'm going to make a statement that shouldn't be very controversial, but maybe, maybe you feel differently, but I imagine most of us can get on the same page here. Zombies are gross, icky, weird, and gross. Now, in fairness, I've never met an actual one, and then perhaps if your great aunt Wanda is a zombie, I'm sorry if I've offended you this morning, but the reality is it seems like zombies are gross. And I think that's why so many TV shows and movies sell, especially for people in you know their 30s to mid 40s, because it just seems like for people who were in a formative age in the 90s, we just like really gross things. So much of the 90s was just gross and the imagery was gross, it was weird. But zombies are in fact gross. And the reason for that is because they're dead, but they're alive. And that's a bit of a paradox, it seems like a bit of an oxymoron and that's the whole point, right? that they are their corpses. They're dead and rotting and decaying, and yet somehow are animated and actually living, stuck somewhere in between that period of life and death. And for a lot of Christians, we live our lives looking like zombies, recognizing that Christ has made us alive, that he saved us by his grace. We've gone through the waters of baptism. We know this to be true about ourselves, and yet we keep putting on all this junk that just looks like death. Whether that's returning back to sin and living lifestyles of sin and pouring on that same death that Christ died to save us out of, or just looking and living miserably, even though Christ has saved us by his grace and mercy, we walk around just gross and stinking and rotten, spiritually speaking, because we haven't really recognized what it means to be saved by the grace and mercy of God. Because regeneration is not some sense of, of Christian zombification where Jesus makes us alive spiritually, but then there's still really no outward signs of that. But regeneration is, in fact, recreation. Paul says there that if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is saved, you aren't simply forgiven, you aren't simply made alive. But when God makes you alive through Christ, he recreates you from the inside out that you are a new creation. Listen, he says, the old has passed and the new has come. The old has passed away. The old is dead and gone. Jesus has killed it and crucified it to the cross and buried it in the tomb and brought you out to be a new person. And there are incredible implications with that. Because I think one unfortunate side effect of having good doctrine when it comes to our understanding of salvation, recognizing that I have nothing good to offer God, that I have no part to play in my salvation, that it's Jesus who calls me and saves me and redeems me and restores me. One of the negative side effects of that proper understanding of the gospel is that we carry that into salvation. And so even as worshipers of God, when our theology kind of lines up with Paul's here, we have a tendency to approach God like Mephibosheth approaches David. And we talked about this in our community group a few weeks ago, and I thought it was so important. When Mephibosheth comes to David, David calls him out. He, is, he's, he can't walk. He is a part of Saul's household. He has no place in David's kingdom. And yet David calls him to come before him. And Mephibosheth approaches David. And he says, what would you have with a dead dog like me? He says, I am worthless. I have no value to you. Why do you care about me? Why am I even here? And David starts by saying, no, 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 no. Let me tell you who you are. You're a member of this family. You're going to sit at my table. You are worthy to be here. And as we think about the fact that our works are worthless to earn salvation, 
Sometimes we approach God saying, oh, I'm just, a, I'm just a dead dog before you. I'm just a worm before you. I'm worthless. I have no value. And yet you still save me and love me. But that's not really true, is it? Because while we were unworthy of the gospel, when we follow after Christ and when he saves us and redeems us, he makes us worthy of the gospel. He takes that shame and that guilt and crucifies it to the cross. And instead of looking at us as his enemies and as children of wrath, or even as worms and dead dogs, God looks at us as his sons and daughters. And the God who shaped the universe and sent his only son to die for us doesn't look at those that he has redeemed and saved by his grace as worthless or empty or undeserving, but he has made us worthy, taken away our shame and our guilt and replaced it with the righteousness of Christ and lavishes his love on us. When we think about the truth of this passage, that if you've trusted in Christ for salvation, that you are a new creation, we need to learn to see ourselves in that way as men and women who become sons and daughters, people who have been saved, redeemed and restored and fit for the gospel, made righteous, made holy by God so that we can stand boldly in his presence and run into his arms as a good father, not as worthless outcasts, but as saved and redeemed children made whole in the sight of God. We have this amazing ability to not only look at God and say, I once was dead, but now I'm alive because of Christ. We can be reminded that because of Christ, I am new and worthy and righteous in the sight of God. Our next word is union. And for that, we're going to go to the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verse 20. And Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When we think about this amazing picture of salvation, we have a tendency sometimes to reduce it down to something that it's not. And a lot of times when people talk about wanting to start coming to church, needing to be saved, needing to be baptized, recognizing all these things. Sometimes the language that we use is, I just really need a fresh start. And we think about salvation, we think about the gospel, we think about baptism as a fresh start or just a brand new lease on life so that we can try to put ourselves back together and live the life that we should. But thank God salvation is not just a fresh start. Because if that's what salvation looked like, if when we came to Christ and he saved us by his grace, that God just says, okay, all your sins past that have gone on, I forgive those. I'm going to wipe the slate clean. I'm going to give you a blank slate, a new foundation. And now you have the opportunity to live your life the way that we should. If that's what salvation looked like, the minute God gave us that fresh start, we would just throw it straight in the mud. We see that all in the Old Testament. Time and time again, the people of Israel would break their covenant with God. He would renew it and restore it and bring them back to where they should be. And then immediately there was a need for another renewal, for another time of sacrifice and worship. Because as soon as God gave them a good gift, the very next generation would just drop it and it would all fall apart. And the same thing would be true about us. But Paul says in this passage, oh, and it's so wonderful and beautiful. It says, I've been crucified with Christ. 
And because of that, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me. The same Jesus who saved us, who made us alive is the one who keeps us saved, working in and through us to complete that good work on the day of Christ Jesus. And we have that reminder over and over again through scripture, even out of the lips of Jesus, he says, those who the father gives me, I can't lose one. He says, there's nothing that can take you out of my hand that once we put our faith and our hope in Jesus and we're saved by his grace, it's not me that keeps myself saved. I don't have to keep that wheel turning. I'm not the one who has to endeavor to make sure that I protect the salvation that was given to me. But we have a promise in scripture that Jesus himself protects that, that we have been united with Christ, that we have been robed in his righteousness and nothing can undo that gift that it's been given because it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in and through me. And so maybe you're having a bad day or a bad week where you're not feeling like you're up to snuff in your relationship with Christ. And maybe it's a time where you're worried, like, what if I'm not saved? What if I'm losing it? What if it's all falling apart? It's those times when we need to look ourselves in the mirror or more importantly, look ourselves in the word of God and remind ourselves that I'm not the one keeping myself saved, but it's Christ living and working in and through me. And he who began that good work in me will surely complete that good work in me because I am united with him. The next word is sanctification. And from this, we go for 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. It says this, he himself bore our sins and his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live in righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And again, when we start thinking about all this stuff biblically, that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, that God calls us out of death and into life. And it's all based on the work of Christ, not on our works, lest we should boast. And that it's Jesus who keeps us saved. We can start thinking, okay, well, I guess, I guess I don't have anything to do. He's done all the work. I'm just going to kick back and wait for that end. But Peter reminds us here, no, no. He bore our sins on the cross so that we could die to sin and we could live to righteousness. Jesus died on the cross so that we could sacrifice our lives for the glory of God and for the good of those around us. The wounds of Christ healed us so that we could live righteously. God has made us worthy of the gospel so that we could live lives worthy of the gospel. And no, again, it's not a blank slate that we have to keep it moving, but he has given us a new life and a new creation so that we can use our lives to honor and glorify him. In Romans chapter 12, Paul reminds us of what this looks like, saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and, and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul says our response to the life that we've been given through Christ is to die, to die to ourselves daily. Jesus even gave his disciples the commandment to take up your cross and follow after me. This life that we've been given, we are called to lay it down for the cause of Christ. And this is what sanctification looks like. It's living as sacrifices, walking in the steps that Jesus has set before us. It's a calling to practice the gospel daily. 
using the life that we've been given to die again day after day after day as an act of worship to the one who gave it to us. The mantra of every Christian should be, God has given me this life, and so I'm going to use my life for God's glory. I'm going to die to myself. I'm going to die to my pride. I'm going to lay down my life for the gospel, if necessary physically, but certainly spiritually, emotionally, and mentally, so that everything I do with this life that I've been given is an act of spiritual worship to God and reflecting his goodness, his grace, and his mercy. Our next word is communion. And for that, we go to the book of Philippians. And in Philippians chapter two, Paul says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affliction and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord in one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And as we always are, we are confronted with the fact that our salvation isn't just for us. Paul says that the sacrifice that Jesus gave, that he was in the very nature God and yet became nothing, emptied himself and humbled himself, not just as a servant, but as a criminal on the cross so that he could die for our sins and trespasses. That, that act of sacrifice that Jesus gave for us isn't only for our salvation, but it's also an example that Christ has set for us for how we should live and die for one another. It's an example meant to be practiced in our lives, in our relationship, in our communion with one another. One of the unfortunate things that happens when we integrate politics with our faith on both sides of the aisle is this language of rights begins to enter in. What about my rights? You can't take away my rights. The government can't take away my rights. These people can't take away my rights. I have these inalienable rights given to me by God. But when we look at the New Testament, we find out that when Christ died for us, that he gave up his rights. The God of the universe stepped out of his rightful place as the sovereign creator of everything, emptied himself, became nothing, and took the form of a servant, and then died a criminal's death on the cross. And so when he calls us from death to life, he again tells us to take that life and lay it down. Paul says that I have become a slave to Christ, that Paul uses his freedom for slavery to Jesus. And so we have this reminder that there is no place for speaking of rights in the Christian language. The Jesus that laid down his rights and his life for us calls us to do the same for others, even saying that no greater love has someone for his brother or sister than this, that he would lay down his own life for them. And as followers of Jesus, as we've been given this life through the sacrifice of Christ, 
We need to learn how to live sacrificial communal lives. As Paul says, looking not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others, counting others more significant than ourselves, not only dying to ourselves for the sake of the gospel daily, but dying for one another daily, knowing that if someone needs something that I have, it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to Christ. And so I'm going to give it. If someone needs me and my time and my space and my energy, then that's not something that I have the right to protect because Jesus died to take those things away. And so I'm going to offer myself humbly for the good of others. We're going to see towards the end of 2 Timothy that Paul calls himself a drink offering being poured out for the sake of others. And that's the kind of life, that's the kind of community that followers of Jesus are supposed to have. And what makes that so amazing and so evangelical is it's so countercultural to anything else in our world. And so we need to be the kind of people who will say, I am going to lay my life down for others. Because Christ has offered me regeneration and recreation and union with him and sanctification. I'm going to take all of that beautiful stuff that God has given me and I'm going to turn it around into worship and I'm going to turn it around into ministry and live in communion and sacrificial community with others. And then our final word is glorification. And for that, we're going to go to John chapter 3. Verse 16. And in this passage from the lips of Christ, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. A few weeks ago on Easter Sunday, we were reminded by Paul that if in Christ we have hope for this life only, we kind of have nothing at all, but we know that it's so much more. John tells us that anyone who believes in Christ, who puts their faith in Jesus, won't perish, but will have eternal life, will be redeemed and restored and glorified once and for all by Jesus. And here we have the reminder of the full picture of the gospel, that it begins with death, that our spirits are dead within us because of our sin and because of our brokenness. And yet God loved us so much. And through the richness of his kindness and mercy, he pours out that love on us through Jesus who makes us alive. That if we believe in Christ and repent of our sins, then we are made alive by Jesus and nothing can take that away. And then he calls us to use that life to die daily as an act of worship to God, as an act of sacrifice to those around us, and to use the life that we've been given for the cause and for the sake of others and for the kingdom of God. But we have this promise that one day we'll be able to lay those labors down. And the God who saved us, redeemed us, and restored us will then bring us into glory, into life everlasting. And so as we've been confessing each and every week, we know that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again so that we can live, so that we can live in Christ, so that we can live for Christ and with one another and for one another, and then ultimately live for all of eternity with Jesus. And this passage, as Paul says, if we die with Christ, we will live with Christ. 
is a call to remember that the gospel is not a one-time conversion event, but a lifelong grace-filled journey as God takes us from death to life to death and life again. And so if you're here with us this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus, then know no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've said, no matter what you may think of yourself, that the good news of Jesus is that God did all the work through Christ, that his salvation is bigger than your wickedness, than your sin, than your brokenness and your shame. And you don't have to do anything to earn God's favor or God's love. Jesus did all of that for you. All we have to do is believe in Christ, trust in him and repent of our sins. And the Bible says that not only are we made alive, but we are a new creation and that nothing will ever take that away from you. And not only are you new in the here and now, but you have the promise of eternal life. And so if you've never put your faith in Jesus before, if you've never been through the waters of baptism before, and you know that you need to follow after Christ in that way, then I want to encourage you to either have the boldness just to reach out in the comment section and just tell some of our people that I need Jesus and our deacons and our community group leaders are all ready and willing to jump in and talk to you about what that means. Or you can contact me personally at any time and we'll talk about what it means to follow after Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus, but you're going through a season where you don't feel like it, whether it's because of your circumstances, whether it's because of sin that's in your life, or whether it's just because this is a really hard and dry time, know that the Christ who regenerated you and resurrected you spiritually, the one who has made you a new creation, is living in and working through you to continue to call you worthy of the gospel that's been given to you, that you are a son and a daughter of God and nothing can take that away. If you're watching and you're walking faithfully with Christ right now and you feel good and you feel that closeness and that presence of God and, and you're walking strongly with Jesus, then I hope that you take this as an encouragement that you don't forget where you came from, that you don't forget that it's Christ and Christ alone that saved you, but that you continue to walk in that worthiness and that boldness, knowing that your identity is in Christ and you are a son or a daughter of God and to continue to use your life to live that way, to sacrifice yourself as an act of worship to God and to live sacrificially and in community with one another. Because the call of the Christian life is to die daily and in doing so to live abundantly recognizing that we are on a course and our hope is that we will live eternally. Next week, we're going to kind of talk some more about some of those things, about what it looks like to endure to the end, what it looks like to deal with our own unfaithfulness, and the one thing that can keep any of this from being true. But for now, let's just rest in the beauty of that gospel of the God who calls us from death to life to death and life eternal. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you and praise you so much that you have indeed called us out of darkness and into glorious light. God, we pray for anyone here participating with us this morning that hasn't put their faith and their hope in you. God, we pray now that you just act in a mighty way in their life, that you show them their need for salvation, that you would call them out of sin and darkness and death and into holiness and brightness of life. God, if there's anyone here that's struggling or questioning their own salvation, 
because of circumstances, because of sins, because of just emotional or mental difficulties. God, I pray that you would remind them of their baptism, that you would remind them that it's not their job to hold on to that, but you hold on to that salvation for them and that you would bring them up out of the darkness and help them to walk again in those steps of life and light. God, I pray for each and every one of us as a community, that we would be more concerned about sacrifice than rights, that we would look at dying as living, taking up our cross, following after you, and laying down our lives for one another. And that it's that kind of sacrificial community that would be the marker of Redeeming Grace Community Church as long as we have the ability to live and move and minister together. And that God, you would continue to instill us with the hope that it's more than just now, but that we have something better coming in the life eternal. And so we love you and we thank you and praise you for all that you are and all that you've done. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.